Well, good evening. We're going to be starting a new book this evening, so you can turn with me in your Bibles to Second Peter in the New Testament, Peter's second epistle. And as we turn there, and as we get ready for this evening's opening study for this series, I, I want to say that uh, we enjoyed very much studying First Peter. Second Peter is very different, same author, a little bit different for a number of reasons. I want to share some of those reasons with you. But before we do, let's open a word of prayer. Oh, Lord, Heavenly Father, as always, we come to you asking that you would do your work, the, the, the work that only you can do in our hearts and in our lives. We now ask, Lord, that you would just take our hearts as we prayed, as we sang, as we offered our hearts to you, Lord God, that even, even against our fleshly will, that you would just take our hearts, receive them, speak to them, change them, and make them more like your heart, Lord. We know that you can do that work, not because we're even willing, but because you're willing and our spirits are willing. You'll do this work in our lives. And we certainly ask that you would start that work afresh and anew, even now, this evening, in this study. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's good to see you all this evening. I am excited about starting yet another book. These epistles go rather quickly at this point because... Second uh, Peter is just three chapters, and we'll go through them over the next month. And then, of course, we'll be going into the epistles of John. And then Jude, and then going back into the Old Testament. So just a few more months of us studying in the New Testament on Wednesday evenings. Well, this letter, Second Peter, was written by Simon Peter shortly before his death in around 67 A.D., Now, it's believed that he wrote from Rome or somewhere on his journey to Rome from the east where he had been ministering. At one point in the last letter, he was talking about ministering from the city of Babylon on the Euphrates River in what is today known as Iraq. This little epistle, this short epistle, contains 11 references to the Old Testament. It also contains a remarkable reference to Paul, the apostle, and his epistles, And some think the epistle that Peter is referring to specifically is 1 Thessalonians at this point in Paul's ministry. Now, the second chapter, one of the things that uh, is worth mentioning uh, before we get into this book is the second chapter is almost identical in language and subject with Jude, the epistle of Jude, which we'll be looking at in a few months. One of them, that is Jude or Peter, may have drawn both their thoughts and their language from the other. In fact, that's what we believe happened. It's also possible that both availed themselves of the same documentary source. But I think, more than likely, it was Jude who, reflecting back on Peter's writing, incorporated what Peter had to say into his epistle and added to it, as we'll see. So it's more likely that it was Jude who quoted from Second Peter and not Peter who quoted Jude couple of reasons I'll give you. Peter quotes only from scriptural sources, only from scriptural sources, whereas Jude quotes from apocryphal writings like the book of Enoch, the assumption of Moses, and then Peter predicts the coming of false teachers, while Jude speaks of these same false teachers as having already arrived. Now, Peter predicts the coming of mockers in the last days, whereas Jude speaks of these same mockers by quoting Peter's prediction. So you can see there's probably about a 10-year difference between Peter writing 2 Peter and sending that letter and Jude sending his letter. And the fact that they're similar doesn't really matter. There's a lot of similarities in different chapters within the Bible because people who wrote as God worked through their life would quote sometimes other portions of Scripture and incorporate them into their writings, and that seems to be what happened here. So Peter wrote between 64 and 67 A.D., while Jude probably wrote between 75 and 80 A.D., to give you a little chronology. Now, this letter has significantly less historical support than any other book in the New Testament. Now, that's for a number of reasons, and, and some of them are really misnomers. That is, they're not good reasons. But just so you know, of all of the books of the New Testament... This is the one that people dispute 
more than any other. Now, its canonicity is seriously doubted by some and denied by others. Now, why is that? Why would, why would people pick on this little book, well, or this letter? It's largely because of the difference in style between 1 Peter and 2 Peter. Uh, when you read both of them, they're, they're so different. And, and the thing that, that, that cracks me up a little bit when we listen to these critics is they don't really think it all the way through. And I'll, I'll share some of the reasons why I believe this is clearly Peter writing it, and there, we have no reason to doubt it as being historically accurate. When Jude writes his epistle, which we've already talked about, he actually endorses Peter's second epistle as apostolic and canonical by quoting from it. So if one New Testament writer quotes from another, you can't say that one is right and the other is wrong, or one is true and the other is false. That doesn't make any sense. Regardless, it was formally recognized and placed in the canon of Scripture of the New Testament in the 4th century, when a lot of what the church was doing was determining which letters and which gospels and which books should be incorporated as God's holy word within the canon of Scripture. So this is one of those uh, controversial books, if you will. And the reasons for it being controversial really don't make sense to me, because just because the writing styles are different doesn't mean it's, it's not the same person. In fact, I shared with you how when Peter wrote his first epistle, with some of the best Greek in the New Testament, and he told us in his epistle why. Who helped him write it? Silas or Silvanus wrote the book while Peter wrote it with him. It was Peter's thoughts, but Silvanus or Silas was the one that put it into writing, and he obviously spoke excellent Greek. Silas was not around to help Peter with this book. That much is obvious, so the writing style is different. But the thoughts aren't all that different, really, when you boil it down. You look at it, it's clearly Peter sharing his heart. In fact, he mentions several experiences from his personal life in this very epistle. So why would we doubt it? He refers to Jesus' prophecy concerning his death when Jesus spoke to him at the end of the Gospel of John. He claims to have been present at Jesus' transfiguration, which we know Peter, James, and John were. And he indirectly claims the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as a true prophet when he writes. He refers to his first epistle by clarifying that this is his second epistle. So I think one of the things you'll run into with critics of the Bible, they'll look for any reason to pick the Word of God apart. Why do they do that? Well, there's one very good reason. They don't want to be held accountable to what the Word of God says. Believe me, if the critics of God's word could somehow uh, come up with a way to take all of Scripture and put it aside and live how they want, or live how they want it, they would. And so they're always just, just constantly undermining the word of God in order to not be held morally accountable to God's word. That's just the way it is. But I don't pay much attention to that. I just figured I would mention that so you had some background as we get into this book. Now, the main theme of this letter, this book, is living in the knowledge of the truth. Living in the knowledge of the truth. And uh, Danielle, who does our graphics for our website, put the theme out there on our front page. And uh, it's actually, uh, there's a gentleman walking and he has Starbucks in his hand. And I wondered if Anthony uh, actually modeled uh, for that. As we all know, Anthony loves Starbucks. But if, if you look at it, the theme is living in the knowledge of of the truth. Not just knowing the truth, living in the knowledge of the truth. That is, you know the truth, now what? Because you can know something's true and not live according to that truth. So that's what this book is really all about. Remember, his first epistle was living for God, but this is living in the knowledge of the truth. So we're going to talk a lot about truth. Peter uses knowledge as well, that word for knowledge, as a key word over and over again. We'll see it. And the purpose of this writing was to instruct them, again, in the knowledge of the truth. So we're going to talk a lot about what truth is and how to know what it is and then how to live according to it. Okay. Now, his writing is personal. It's emphatic. It's direct. And it's consistent with how he spoke or how his words are recorded in Acts chapter 15, verse 7, when he spoke at the Council of Jerusalem. If you look at Peter's words quoted by Luke when he writes the book of Acts— You'll see his language there was very similar to the language of 2 Peter. And I think that's because, again, this is really Peter. This is who Peter is. 
when he wrote his first epistle, he had Silas there to really just edit it for him. And so it was, I think, probably more of a collaborative work, certainly, than this epistle. So, the Greek style of this letter, this is kind of unfortunate, but the Greek style of this letter is very difficult, and it's described as ambitious, artificial, and even obscure. That is, it's not very good Greek. I find that interesting. His first epistle is, is, is an example of the best Greek, some of the best Greek in the New Testament, his second epistle, some of the worst Greek, and that's because Peter didn't speak Greek, or not very well if he did at all. It's been described as the, this is interesting, it has been described as the only book in the New Testament that is improved by translation. Uh, so obviously, not incredibly well written, but remember who Peter is. He's a Galilean fisherman. He's not a theologian. He writes from his heart, not so much from his head. And I think it's important to realize that God doesn't let something like that stand in the way of someone being used by him. So maybe you're not articulate. You're, you're, you're not eloquent of speech or with pen. It doesn't mean God won't speak through you. And sometimes a straight talker, a direct shooter, uh, has more of an impact on someone's heart than someone with very flowery speech and carefully selected words. Well, anyway... The author, that is Peter, appears to be ambitiously writing in a style which is beyond his literary power. That he's trying really hard, but it's obvious he doesn't speak very well. Uh, Not Greek, at least. This would explain the difference of style between 1st and 2nd Peter. So anyone who criticizes the book or questions its authenticity probably didn't think it all the way through. Okay. This book was addressed to the same... Hebrew and Gentile Christians that had received his first epistle. They had been scattered throughout the provinces of Asia Minor, which is the areas of Turkey and Syria today. These were the very same churches, incidentally, that had been planted by Paul and his ministry team. So Paul had planted these churches, and now Peter's writing to them, or many of these churches he had planted, and now Peter's actually writing to them. Why is that important? There were two teams, you know, Peter's team and Paul's team, and, you know, they kind of had different denominations, and you no, know, it wasn't like that. They, you'll see later on John also ministering to the same group of people in Ephesus where Paul planted the church. So it's important to realize these men all work together. Apollos, Peter, Paul, Timothy, Mark. The list goes on and on of men, Luke, men and women. Priscilla and Aquila. Men and women who ministered in the power of the Spirit alongside others. And God will do that today. There's no one-man show, you know, there's no woman show. We know that. We talked about that on Sunday. So, as we look at the letter as a whole, and before we get into the first section here, uh, it's a brief letter. There's three chapters. It's divided into four major sections with a brief inter- introduction. We're going to look at the introduction and also the first section tonight, and then we'll take the rest of our time in the uh, other three major sections. But the first section is after the introduction, the truth about Christian growth. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight, the truth about Christian growth. The others are the, the truth about God's word, the truth about false teachers, and then the truth about Christ's return. But for this evening, we're going to look at the truth about Christian growth. So, are you growing as a Christian? Are you growing as a Christian? You know, I have this plant in my office that somebody gave me many years ago. It's a cactus, which I think is... Um, synonymous with you really can't kill it, which is really good because I haven't killed it yet. You know, during COVID, I think I went like a month or two without watering it. And I thought, oh, that plant's got to be dead, you know? And I gave it a little water, it came back to life, and it lives on. I'm not very good with plants. That's not my thing. But I do know something about growth. If you give a plant what it needs, it grows. If you give a child what it needs, it grows. If you give a Christian what he or she needs, they grow. And what Peter wants them to know is, if if you're going to grow, there's things you need to cultivate in your life. Now, I've always said this, just to boil it down, if you didn't want to read the rest of tonight's scripture and you just wanted to get the the, the boiled-down version of it, the gist of it, I'd say this, come to Bible study, you'll grow. Be in God's Word. Study God's Word. And I say this all the time, I A lot of my friends, when we first became Christians, we were young men, late teens, early 20s, was a group of us. 
Uh, there were a few that came to Bible study every Tuesday night, and there were the few that now and then showed up. And I can say, those of us who showed up every Tuesday night, we grew. Within a year, we knew our Bibles. We knew the truth of Scripture. We knew the gospel. We started to serve. Our lives were transformed. What did we do? We just showed up. I mean, that was pretty much it. I mean, to be honest with you, I didn't go to like some kind of a Bible college or, or start taking extra classes. I just showed up on Sundays when I could because the church was in New York and I was working on the weekends with a band. Uh, but, you know, I'll tell you this, at the, uh, on that Tuesday night, uh, that was my night. I was there like clockwork. I remember going on vacation and coming back on Tuesday morning so I wouldn't miss Bible study. That was how I grew in Christ. Within a very short time, I grew to the point that I was flourishing. And it was mostly, among other things, fellowship, relationships, those things as well, obedience, yes. But the most important thing, the most significant thing I did was just come to Bible study once a week. Can I say that? So if you're concerned about your growth, it's probably because of that. It's probably because you're not consistently in God's Word. So let's get into the the Word. We'll look at the topic that Peter has to share with us, the truth about Christian growth. But before we do, let's just look at his introduction. He says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who, through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Brief introduction, but in, in introducing himself here, he introduces himself to these Hebrew and Gentile Christians as a slave. A slave. Now, Peter wasn't a slave. He wasn't a Roman citizen, but he wasn't a slave. He was a fisherman. He was a businessman until he was drafted by the Lord and became a fisher of men. And for many years now, he's been serving the Lord as an apostle, as a minister, He now begins to write this letter at the end of his life, at the end of his ministry. But he calls himself a slave. Doulos is the word. It's a slave, like an indentured servant, a bondman, a man of servile condition, someone who has chosen to be a servant. About the best way I could liken it to today's world is someone who waits on tables or someone that chooses to be in the hospitality uh, sector, someone who has made their life serving others. That's how he describes himself. He had given himself up to the will of God. Whatever God wants me to do, that's what I'm going to do, Peter might say. He had devoted himself to Jesus Christ without regarding his personal interests. That is a battle, isn't it? We have all these plans for our lives. I've already shared how I was in my early 20s when I became a Christian. I had many plans for my life, and all of them uh, were, were different than what actually ended up happening. <laughs> I mean, there were things that I chose to do, wanted to do, was working on doing, and pretty much those things got put aside to some degree so that I could do what God had called me to do with my life. Now, in saying that, I wouldn't change things, but you have to surrender yourself to the will of God. And so by being a servant, you surrender yourself to the will of the person you're serving. In this case, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So he had devoted himself to Jesus Christ without regarding his personal interests. When someone's waiting at a restaurant, they're waiting tables, they're not there to eat. They're not there to be served. They're not there to make menu choices. They're there to serve you, the customer. So that's how Peter introduces himself. He also introduces himself by stressing his authority, because as a servant, as a servant leader, he had authority within the church. He says, I'm an apostle. The Greek apostolos, it basically means one who sent, an envoy, an ambassador, a messenger. So in addition to being a slave, he had a message from God that he was called to share. Remember, he was sent directly by Jesus himself after having followed him for three and a half years of his life. He was considered one of the three pillars of the Jewish church in Jerusalem as well, along with James, the brother of our Lord, and and John. They were were the leaders in that church. They called them pillars. They They were the ones that were really leading the church through those first few decades. In this letter, as he writes, in the latter part of verse 1, he says, To those 
who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. So who, to whom is he writing? Well, he addresses Jews and especially Gentiles that had become Christians. He wants them to know that they had become Christians through the righteousness of God the Son. It was only because of Christ's righteousness that any of them, Jews or Gentiles, could be called Christians, could be called believers or disciples, could be called the children of God. And did you notice how he explicitly refers to Jesus as God, Savior, and Christ or Messiah? You know, I don't see it so much anymore, but when I became a Christian, there were a lot of cults and weird groups of people who made it their business to deny the deity of Jesus Christ. They were constantly saying, well, you know, like the Mormons, the Jehovah Witnesses, uh, the Way International. There were other groups of people as well at that time, going back in the uh, mid-80s. Their big thing was, well, Jesus isn't really God. That was their big thing. And you'd go to scriptures like this, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours, and you'd share that with them, and then they'd double-talk you on how it doesn't really say what it says. But I think this is not the only reference to Jesus being God in the New Testament, but actually there are references to the Savior or Messiah being God in the Old Testament. Have we forgotten? His name will be Emmanuel, which is interpreted... God with us. Okay, so Old and New Testament testify to Messiah being God. So where do they come up with this stuff? I don't know. Pit of hell, probably. But I can tell you definitively, Jesus is Lord, God, and Savior. Amen? So we know that. But he mentions it here. He's one with God the Father, and God the Spirit is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's the only Savior sent to die on a cross to save all mankind from their sins, and he is the promised Christ, or Messiah, of the Jewish Scriptures. And he says there, Peter says that they had received their faith. Did you see that? Received a faith as precious as ours. Doesn't say they earned it, paid for it. It says they received it like a gift, the grace of God. They received it. In fact, if you look up the meaning of that word received, it means it was apportioned or allotted to them, given to them. And I want you to understand through Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ causes God to allot to you this wonderful faith that saves you. The righteousness of Christ that saves you. So we've received as a free gift the grace of God. This faith in Jesus Christ, it isn't something we've earned. It's not something we've done to cause or or bring about in our lives. It's Christ's sovereign work according to his grace, his unmerited favor. Because we've chosen to put our faith in God, he has given us a faith that we have now received because of Christ's righteousness. So there's no question about the grace of God in our lives, according to Peter. He also goes on to extend an abundance of God's grace and peace to them. I've said this before. God's grace always, always precedes his peace. That is, until you experience the grace of God, you'll never have peace with God. And you'll never experience peace in this world. God's peace is experienced once you've received his grace. And that's why they say grace and peace and not peace and grace. It's in that order. And of course, we've heard this greeting before. These are the common greetings of the day. He's writing to Jews, he's writing to Gentiles, and the common Greek greeting was grace. The common Jewish greeting was peace or shalom. still is today. He identifies the intimate knowledge of God and of Jesus as the true source of grace and peace. Did you see that or did you miss that? Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. You see, that's how we experience grace, God's grace and God's peace. It's through the knowledge, as it says there, of God and of Jesus our Lord. So unless you have a relationship with God through the person of Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit, you won't experience God's grace and you won't experience God's peace. But Peter is writing to Jews and Gentiles who had put their faith in Christ. And through his righteousness had come to salvation. So he could say those words, grace and peace be yours in abundance. And that's how he opens the letter. And of course, 
This was Peter's greeting in both of his epistles and Paul's trademark greeting that he used in every single one of his epistles. And two of them, I believe, he said grace, mercy, and peace when he wrote to Timothy. But still, grace and peace were at the beginning of every one of his writings and Peter's as well. Okay, so let's get back now to what I talked about before, the theme of this next section, which is the truth about Christian growth. You, you have to, you should be growing in your faith. Now, see, it starts with God giving you a faith, you receiving faith, but it doesn't end there. See, this is what saddens me. There are many Christians that come to faith, but they never really make it any further. They receive faith. They receive God's grace. They have peace with God through Jesus Christ. But do they add to that faith the things we're about to talk about? Because that's where you and I, we come in. We respond to God's grace by studying the knowledge of the truth, right? That's what we talked about before, living in the knowledge of the truth. So once we receive the truth, now we begin to live in the knowledge of the truth, and we begin to grow, just like that plant grows when you give it water and sunlight and all that it needs. Just like your children grow when you give them food. Just like you and I, just like we grow when we invest our lives in the Word of God and allow God's Word to nourish us, we grow. So look at the first two verses of this section, verses 3 through 4. We read there that His, that is, of course, God's divine power, has given us everything. Amen? It's given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory. And goodness. I mean, that, that, that's a lot to think about. We're just three verses in. See, what Peter's telling us is, as it regards to, or in regards to the truth about Christian growth is that the knowledge of God and of Jesus is the true source of divine power. See, God's power in your life is experienced through knowledge of God and his son, Jesus Christ. Knowing about and knowing Jesus Christ, that will cause you to grow. That's where the divine growth comes in, the divine power. His divine power provides us with what? Some of what we need? Most of what we need? A little of what we need? A lot of what we need? No, everything, it says, that we need to live godly lives. So if you're not living a life of godliness as a Christian... It's because you're lacking knowledge of God. You're lacking knowledge of Jesus. And where do we get that knowledge? Where do we experience that divine power? Through the Word of God. Most Christians fail to grow because they do not study God's Word. It's just that simple. And many Christians don't grow to the extent that they could because they're not consistently in God's Word. You know, I have to tell you, there are certain disciplines martial arts being one of them, that if you just show up every week, you grow. It's true in athletics. It's true in any study, any uh, academic discipline. But it doesn't happen like just because you show up once. I mean, you can't just show up once and then you're a black belt. It doesn't work that way. You have to keep showing up. And at first you think, I don't know, am I ever going to get there? A week after month, after a year, you start to notice, wow, I couldn't do that before. I couldn't kick that high. I couldn't punch that fast. I couldn't move like that. I couldn't run the bases as fast as I used to. I, I, I couldn't run a track event in that time. How did that happen? Because I showed up every week and did what I had to do to train. That's how that happened. So, so if you're looking for quick microwave results... Let me just tell you, that's not going to happen. It's a matter of taking everything that God has given you and applying yourself to the knowledge of that every single day, not just once a week at Bible study, every single day. And as you do that, slowly but surely, you begin to grow. You know, there are some plants on our property that I swear, if I looked at them for a half hour, I could see them grow. We have a wisteria that, it's crazy. That thing grows like crazy. There's some plants that grow slowly, but that one grows quickly. I know that I'm growing in Christ, but I really want to grow as much and quickly as I can. 
And so I make myself available to God's divine power through the knowledge of God and Jesus. He's called us by his own divine glory, despite our human weaknesses. See, God is glorious, and he's called you, and yet you're not glorious. You're vainglorious, if you will. That is, you're not really strong at all. You and I are not. We're, we're, we're weak. But yet God, by his own divine glory, has called us despite our human weaknesses. And he's called us by his own divine goodness, despite our sinful nature. See, you and I are not only not glorious, <laughs> we're weak, we're also not good. We're sinful. And yet God has called us, as we read there. He's given us his divine power. Everything we need for life and godliness. Everything we need. How? Through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Not your glory. That is not your strength. Not your goodness. Because you're weak and sinful and so am I. So that, that's, you want to talk about Christian growth? That's the truth about Christian growth right there. But it continues. His divine power also provides us with very great and precious promises. Look at verse 4. Through these, what, what are these? His own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So how are you going to escape your, your own weakness, your own, your own uh, sinfulness in this world? How are you going to grow into the Christian that God has called you to be, the son or daughter of God? Well, God's grace, God's glory, God's divine power, his goodness. And, and how do you experience those things? We're going to see in a minute through the word of God, through the knowledge, as we talked about, the knowledge of the truth. The knowledge, living in the knowledge of the truth. Okay. He has promised us by his own divine glory to create us and create in us his own divine nature. That which is lacking in us. We're not like God, but he'll make us more like him. If we make ourselves available to him. He's also promised. These are the promises we mentioned before that Peter mentioned. His great and precious promises. Promises to make us or give us or create in us his own divine nature, but also he's promised by his divine goodness to deliver us from our own sinful nature. That is, you're going to get the victory over your sins. Amen? Those are the promises God has given you. But it doesn't happen through osmosis. My, my teacher used to always say that. You can't learn through osmosis. Until I took biology, I didn't even know what that was. But apparently it's this process where these uh, particles go through a barrier, like, you know, uh, particles transmit through a, 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 a firm barrier because there's this process called osmosis. So in other words, if you take your Bible, you put it under your pillow at night, and you go to sleep, by osmosis, the Bible is not going to go through your pillow into your brain, I guess is what I could say it that way. You have to apply yourself. Okay? Now, knowledge like this will not only be powerful, but change you in a powerful way. It has the power to change. Knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ is supposed to, supposed to effectively and productively transform our lives. See, knowing the truth about God causes his divine power to change you. So if you tell me you're a Christian and you know God and you know his word, but I don't see any change whatsoever, I beg to differ. See, it's one thing to say, oh, I know God, I know God's word. But again, it's not through osmosis. You have to apply yourself. And if you do, I tell you for, for sure, if you do for certain, you'll grow to become more like him. Now look what he says in verses uh, 5 through 7. He goes on. For this very reason, so for the reason that we've just talked about, for all those things we just talked about, for this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. Now, first of all, I want to say to notice, Peter established up front, don't make every effort to be saved. He didn't say that. In fact, he started by saying, you've received your faith from God through his righteousness. And it's God's divine glory and power that does all the salvation work and even causes you to grow. 
But there is a responsibility we have, and Peter addresses it here when he says, make every effort to add to your faith. Now, the faith is a gift of God, by God's grace. You can't save yourself. What you can do is add to your faith the things we're about to talk about. The things that truly divine, uh, that truly are done by divine power, and define what we might call Christian growth. Christian character. But you see, you have to apply yourself. So let's talk about what those things are. His divine power equips us to grow in our knowledge of Christ. And here's what we can expect. We're empowered by God, by his spirit, to richly add to the faith that we have received from God in Christ. And we're called to experience his divine nature by his divine power in these eight ways. First, and you saw that list there, he mentions faith. Now, this is a faith that's added to your saving faith. We're not talking about saving faith, because you can't make any effort to receive that. That, That's by grace. But here, faith, what, what kind of faith should you be increasing in? What kind of faith should you be adding to your saving faith? Well, a faith that can be defined as belief or trust. Trust in God. That's about the best way I can put it. Confidence in God. Fidelity and loyalty to Jesus Christ. So are you growing in your trust of God? Are you trusting God more and more? How about goodness? What does goodness mean? Now, again, it's God's goodness that does the work, but we should be adding goodness to our faith, our saving faith. What is goodness? It's defined in this way. Virtuous thoughts and feelings and actions. That is doing the right thing. Morality, modesty, purity. Your character should be transformed as you live in the knowledge of the truth. You shouldn't be the same person in terms of faith. You should grow in your faith. You should grow in goodness. You should become a better person. Not a bitter person, a better person. As you grow closer to Jesus Christ and study his word. You should also add to your faith knowledge. Now this is the thing about knowledge. God can give you knowledge. There's a gift of knowledge. That's not something you can add. That's something God gives you. He can give you understanding, knowledge, the ability to understand We're not really talking about that here. We're talking about knowledge, which is practical. Practical intelligence. Now, when I do a home improvement project, I watch those little YouTube videos. Why do I do that? I want to see someone else do it. I add to my basic knowledge, additional knowledge. And I can remember I was working on my car one time. Uh, I had to take the door panel off my Mini Cooper. And I was trying to get the door panel off. I said, ah, I can't figure out how to do this. You, you don't even know where the screws are, right? There was only four screws, but I, I, I had to watch this little video. So I watched the video, and the guy found all the screws. I said, oh, awesome. And in taking the door panel off, he broke a little portion of the door, and, and he said, you know, oh, well, I guess now you won't make that mistake. And the truth is, when I watch these videos, I learn. Are you one of those people that go to Ikea, buy a shelf, and don't read the directions? Shame on you. Because you know what's going to happen. I have to say, Ikea does a great job with their directions. So if you're, I don't need to read the directions. If, that's, if, if that is the way you approach life, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. But if you want to add knowledge to your faith, God's word may not be on video, although you, nowadays it probably is. You probably could find some video on YouTube. I, I saw one with those graphics, those interesting graphics where God's word actually shows up. And so technically, I suppose, yes. But you have to add God's word to your faith. Knowledge, practical intelligence, understanding, which translates into moral wisdom and right living. Getting it right. Knowledge. Self-control. Self-control. We talked a lot about this, I believe, last week. Self-control is what happens when you surrender yourself to God's control. It is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. But it's not just a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's a decision on your part to submit your life to God. Self-control is mastering your desires and your passions, controlling your sensual appetites. And that can be translated into lustful behavior or even just eating too many chocolate chip cookies. Are you the kind of person that finishes the chips ahoy? Like, is that, is that you? Then, 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 you know, we're talking about self-control here. It's like eating one Dorito 
chip, right? Not going to happen. Or one pistachio nut. Oh, my goodness. What is my problem with pistachio nuts? I will sit and eat an entire bag. And I'm talking about like a bag, yo big, like, I don't know, five-pound bag of pistachio nuts. And it's a good thing I buy them in the shelves, you know? Can you imagine if you just bought them? If you guys buy them out of the shell, that's like crack. I don't think you'll ever make it back. It's over. You know, so when we give ourselves over to these things, these desires, sensual appetites, um, we lose control of ourselves. We surrender and submit our control to what we want. Self-control is taking those things and saying, God, you don't want these things for me, so I'm not going to choose to do that. I'm not going to sit down and eat the entire bag of pistachio nuts. I'm using a silly example. Or go to Dunkin' Donuts and eat an entire box of donut holes or munchkins. You know, it's that idea. Now, you can apply that to other areas of your life. But it's knowing when enough is enough. And it's knowing what things are not good for you. And choosing to do the right thing. And you get that knowledge from God. But the self-control is actually applying that knowledge. He also mentions perseverance. Now, I'm learning something about perseverance as I train in this heat. Man, you really lose a lot of your endurance when it's like 95 degrees out and humid, right? I mean, it's just difficult, right? You just run out of steam. Well, here's the problem. A lot of Christians, they're good at like, you know, 60 degrees, 65 degrees. But then when the heat really cranks up, they have no perseverance. They give in. They give up. They pass out. And I'm not just talking about physical training here. I'm talking about spiritual things. Perseverance is to be steadfast, constant, regardless of the conditions, victorious, and enduring trials and sufferings. That is, you're the same person at 65 degrees as you are at 95 degrees. You're consistent. How does that happen? How do you do that? It's perseverance, and it comes through applying yourself in God's Word. Perseverance. Godliness. Godliness. Well, we can't be God. We're not God, but we can be like God, do the things and think the way that God thinks. It really means this reverence. Godliness really means reverence or respect. It means thinking, feeling, and acting properly toward God and man. That's the, in that context, in, that, in the language in which this is written, godliness means looking at God, respecting him, and then treating other people as God would have you treat them, to do what God would do what Jesus would do. So that's, that's important. Two more, brotherly kindness. This just simply means to sincerely love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Just love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Even if you don't like them sometimes, just love them. Care about them. Put them first. And finally, love, which takes it to a whole different level. Because this is an unwavering commitment to others that is unconditional and unbreakable. And it includes more than just brothers and sisters in Christ. It includes everyone, even your enemies. Or did Jesus not say, love your enemies? This is tough. How do you do that? You add this character, these character traits, to your faith through the knowledge of the truth by growing closer to Jesus Christ, experiencing his power, and knowing who he is. It's through relationship. Okay, verses 8 and 9. In verses 8 and 9, and we're just going to go through verse 11 tonight, so. For if, now this is the condition, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure. Do you notice that? In increasing measure. That is, you should be experiencing things like this now, here, at this level, and like five years from now, at the next level. Like, it's an increasing thing. It's, you should get better at this. You should be adding more and more, and the quality of these character traits should be increasing as well. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, but if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted, myopic, in the original, nearsighted and blind, and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. So there you have two paths you can take. You can increase in these character traits or not. And if you don't, you're nearsighted. You're blind. It says here, you've forgotten something very important. You've forgotten that you've been cleansed from your past sins. 
You got stuck. That's one way to say it. You just got stuck. You're not going forward. You're not going backward. You're kind of lukewarm. You're not progressing. You're not regressing. Or maybe you're, you are regressing to some degree. You're not growing. You ever, you ever have a plant that just didn't grow? Didn't die. But didn't grow either. That unfortunately describes many Christians today. But you see, God's divine power prevents us from being ineffective and unproductive. Do you want someone to describe you in a performance appraisal as, I find him to be ineffective and unproductive. You know what's coming next, right? So we suggest terminating his employment. I mean, that's what you can expect after ineffective and unproductive. And I'm not saying God terminates you or writes you off, but... You don't want to live an ineffective and unproductive life. Christian growth is a constant and continuing process throughout our earthly lives. You never get to the place where you're like, well, glad I mastered that. Ineffective means this, idle, lazy, slow, and unwilling to produce. Notice, unwilling to produce. To be ineffective is really largely a function of your will. And it brings about you being unproductive, which means unfruitful, barren, or unable to produce. That is, you're either unwilling or unable to do the things that God has called you to do. Now, we know God has given us everything we need to be able to do it, but you've chosen not to, so therefore you're unable to. So who can you blame for not growing in Christ? Only yourself. You can't blame the Spirit. You can't blame God. You can't blame God's Word. You can't blame other Christians. It's on you. Neglecting Christian growth will leave us spiritually handicapped. Does anyone want to be handicapped? Some people are born handicapped or became handicapped. They're not happy about it. They've adapted. They've learned to make adjustments. But ultimately, if given the chance, I'm sure they wouldn't want to be. So, nearsighted is mentioned. Myopic or unable to see anything very far off. You're short-sighted. I happen to actually be nearsighted, but... It's not because of my Christian character. It's because my eyes staring at a screen for decades in my career as a business person obviously caused me to lose a little bit of my sight. Nearsighted, unable to see anything afar off. Blind, unable to visualize the truth or see the truth. That's what happens if you become unproductive or ineffective. You forget that you've been forgiven of your sins through faith in Jesus Christ. And it causes you to just get stuck. Oh, brothers and sisters, if there's anybody here tonight who's stuck, get unstuck, please. How do you do that? Start by just coming out on Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings. That's enough for now. That's enough. It really is. If you just listen twice a week, you can go online and listen to messages, not only uh, from, from our website, from other websites. You can watch YouTube videos. Certainly apply yourself. You can study on your own. But If I could just say, you know, I'm not here for my health (laughs) on Wednesday nights or Sunday mornings. I'm here to help you grow as a Christian. I put the time in and have invested my life in the study of God's Word so that I can share with you the things that God has shown me so you can grow too. And I think that's a wonderful and encouraging thing to think about and a good reason to be here consistently. And you are, and that's wonderful. Okay. Finally, in verses 10 through 11, and then we'll close. His divine power motivates us to grow in our knowledge of Christ. See, it's his divine power. It motivates us. You don't have to do it in your own strength. And that's the thing. It's like, yes, you have to make an effort, but the work's already been done. You just need to respond and and really apply yourself so that you can receive. And remember, we talked in, in the beginning about receiving. Even these things, as you make the effort, you receive because God power through his spirit does the work. You just need to surrender. You just need to make yourself available. That's really all God is asking. Your responsibility is to respond to his ability. Are you doing that? Look what it, what Peter says, and look what it says here in God's word. Verse 10, therefore, here's our conclusion tonight before we close. My brother's Be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall. And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter breaks it down in this way. Christian growth assures us that we are, in fact, called and chosen by God. 
You ever wonder whether you're called and chosen by God? Well, if you're growing, you are. It's the only way you're going to know. If you're growing, you are. You're not going to grow in your own strength. So if you're growing as a Christian, you're saved. A lot of people doubt their salvation. Are you growing? I mean, we're eager, as Paul says, to work out what he has worked in us, what has been worked in us. That's what Paul said in Philippians 2. Work out what's been worked in you. Like, that's what you're supposed to do. Our actions don't cause us to be saved. We know better. But they prove we're saved. They prove we're saved. They don't, they don't cause us to be saved, but they prove that we're saved. James talked a lot about that. Paul talked a lot about that. Christian growth not only assures us that we're in fact called and chosen by God, it also guarantees us that we will be victorious in our earthly life. That's why he says it this way, make your calling and election sure, but if you do these things, you will never fall. Does that mean you'll be perfect? No, but it means you won't fall into the kinds of sins that will destroy your life. We must choose to obey God's word in God's power and by God's grace. It's a choice. And we will surely fall into sin if we choose to disobey God's word. So choose to obey God's word. And as it says here, I can promise you this because Peter says it by the power of the Spirit. If you do these things, if you obey God's word, you will never fall. In this life, that's what we're talking about. You will never fall. That's a wonderful promise. That's one of those great and precious promises we talked about earlier. Now, Christian growth promises us that we will be abundantly blessed for all eternity because this thing doesn't end here. And that's why Peter ends this section by saying, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You see, it's not just what happens here. That's just part of it. A very small part of it, actually, when you look right at it. It's it's actually just the beginning of an eternity of God's blessings, which we can begin to experience in the here and the now. We will be blessed, abundantly blessed for all eternity. We will be richly rewarded for our obedience to God's word. We will richly add to our faith in Christ now, and he will richly add to our faith for all eternity. We'll be welcomed into Christ's presence for all eternity. So what's the truth about Christian growth? The the truth about Christian growth is you and I, we need to make a choice to obey God. And if we do, we'll grow in him. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for Peter's words. And we ask now that these words would be powerful and impactful in our lives, that we would take seriously the encouragement in your word and apply our hearts and our lives in the exact way that Peter described here. May we add to our faith all of these wonderful character attributes that your spirit desires to cultivate in our hearts. Oh Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.